All right, let's uh, turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to try to finish up 5 today, if we have time. And we'll be reading from uh, verses 31 through 48. Furthermore, you have heard it said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you've heard that said that it, of old, you shall not swear falsely or perform, you shall perform your oaths before the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by earth, for it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your own head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Whatever is more than these is some of the evil one. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, give him your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him that asks, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You've also heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who persecute you and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven for he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust if you love only those who love you then what reward do you have do not even the tax collectors do the same and if you greet only your brethren what do you do more than others even the tax collectors do so do, therefore, you shall be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. <laughs> After my, every time I read that verse, I go, really, Lord? I, I think what's important is to understand when Jesus used the term, uh, you have heard that it was said or has been said. You have to understand what he's doing. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees had scrambled up true godly living into more of an outward appearance of what they thought was righteousness rather than the heart. And last week we heard Jason expose to us this error in the issue of hating a brother at being murder. You did a good job too. Thank you. But to understand why the Jewish people found Jesus so radical, you need to understand what they were actually venerating. They weren't venerating the actual scriptures. They venerated Moses, but in name only. They didn't obey his teachings. They defaulted to two different codes that had been passed down through the ages to them. One of those was called the Talmud. The other was called the Mishnah. The Talmud and the Mishnah were commentaries on the law that had been They were not inspired. (laughs) They had been commentaries from men's opinion in the Jewish culture on how to interpret, but it was full of errors 
and man's ideas and traditions. When Jesus came on the scene, he seemed to be teaching radical truth. Well, he was. (laughs) But they actually didn't realize that he was teaching what the real law intent was. The spirit in which they were given originally by God, the preaching of them faithfully gets down into the heart, not just the outward exterior. You know, sometimes I think in the church today, and especially in America, we just want surface Christianity. We want to, you know, have easy believism. And believing is easy if you really understand who Jesus is. But it's not uh, head knowledge or head believing. Or it's not head knowledge. It's head believing, actually. Your heart is just a pump, right? (laughs) Or where we get to, well, we get somebody to pray some prayer or become a church member. It gives us false assurance of being a Christian. And I was told at the last convention I went to that 50% of the members of my church are lost, are not born again. I hope that's not true. You see, Jesus in these verses quoting four different times, you heard that it was said. He does it in 33, 38, 43, and in verse 31 here where we were. Now, each time he's not necessarily quoting the law. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. He might be quoting what they heard in the Talmud or what they heard in the Mishnah. And each time he's going back to the law with a heart application. And that's what this is about. The heart application. The Pharisees were giving people permission to go to the furthest limits of obedience and still be able to say they were complying with the law. So most of the questions Jesus asked were asked, is it permissible, blah, blah, blah. It's kind of like a lot of young Christians come at times And they say, Brother John, is it wrong to go to movies? We were kids and we were in a Christian school one time, a very legalistic church, and we had to sign a thing that we wouldn't go to movies. That's not the issue. It's not the right or wrong. The issue is, is it glorifying God? Instead of saying, now, let's see, I'm, if I'm a good Christian, I don't go to movies. Baloney. First of all, there's no such thing as a good Christian. <laughs> right? And secondly, use some discernment about what you watch. You know, The Passion of Christ, The Passion of the Christ, uh, a movie that many of us have watched, has an R rating on it because of all the blood. Okay? But it's a really good movie. I wish everybody would watch it. It gives you a real sense of the suffering Jesus went through. The thing is, is that if you can do this, what you're going to do or thinking about doing or already doing, if you can do it while you're in the presence of God, and I don't like those WWJD things, what would Jesus do? Because that's not really the issue here. The issue is what he want you to do, not what he would do. He would do things you can't do. <laughs> He could do things you can't do. So, Jesus knew what the purpose of the law was since he was the lawgiver originally, right? 
So he knew what it was supposed to be saying. Now, the first thing he deals with here is divorce and remarriage. Now, I want to tell you something about this, okay? I am of the opinion through Scripture that anything you did before you got saved is null and void in terms of any condemnation that you might feel for having done this or that. I also believe that if you have done something that's against the law of God and you realize you have and you are in a situation where you're in a marriage or whatever and you're already married again or, you know, a second time, there's forgiveness. Okay? No, God does not want any person to forsake their spouse for the sake of these verses, especially if you're just coming into the knowledge of what he's really saying. Now, I'll tell you, um, he says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's what the Pharisees said, that Moses said that. And he clarifies that, that other than sexual immorality, just divorcing somebody without cause is wrong. He says here, if a man is causing, divorces a wife without cause, the assumption is she's going to remarry. So he's causing her to commit adultery, and he's committing adultery if he marries a woman like that. Listen to what it says in chapter 19. There's a little clarification here about this. 19, 3 through 9. The Pharisees came to him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? See this thing? Here they come with another, Is it permissible idea? (laughs) He answered them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has put together no man should separate. They said to him, Then why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? This has to hurt what he says then. (laughs) Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Now the question here is, how far can we go in allowable behavior and not be condemned by God? And Jesus cuts right through every bit of that, And says, have you not read? (laughs) He goes back to the Scripture. Not to the Talmud. Not to the Mishnah. But to the Scripture. God made them male and female. And the two become one flesh. What God joins together, no man can separate. This is pretty clear. But we're in the habit of saying to God, Oh Lord, show me your will. I really want to do your will. And he shows us. We go, well Lord, show me your other will. There's no such thing. Okay? He's pretty pretty specific. If if it, it says if he did it without cause, he puts that ex-wife in danger of committing adultery. And this is what Jesus had in mind. Believers are free in many ways to remember remarry under the law. But even in this situation, it has to be done scripturally or it ends up being adultery. 
And like I said before, I don't know who everybody I'm talking to, but remember, there's always forgiveness. <laughs> God doesn't want you to jump out of a situation you're already in. But if it's not done according to Scripture, then we really get in trouble. I'll tell you, the word here used by Jesus for adultery or sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea. And I know what you think of immediately, pornography. But that's actually not the only meaning of it. It means prostitution, incest, bestiality, homosexuality, any sexual situation outside of the marriage. It falls all those into that one word, pornea. And the severe limitation here that Moses was trying to prevent in his day was he was looking out for the woman. Because here's the thing. Without a husband, they could not own land. They could not have an inheritance. They had no guarantee of remarriage after the death of their former husband. It was actually punishment for an adulteress was death. But these people were suffering almost worse by being put away for no reason. Now, the divorce without cause was forbidden by Jesus. Keep that in mind when you're thinking about this. The original intent of the law of Moses was to hold the husband responsible because women were little more than chattel in those days. Without cause is the key here. I believe there's an exception to this rule in the case where a believer has been abandoned by an unbelieving wife for whatever reason or an unbelieving husband. If you would... Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Ten through fifteen. He says, Now to the married I command, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, and even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to the husband. And the husband is not to divorce his wife. But the rest I say, not the Lord. If a brother has a wife who does not believe, and he or she is willing to live with them, do not let them divorce. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, don't let them divorce. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. That does not mean they're saved. It means that there's a separation in that marriage from the world. If he, and, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, and your children would be clean otherwise, but now they are holy or set apart. But, listen to this carefully, if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases because God has called it to peace. In other words, if you have a wife or a husband that just leaves you, and they're unbelievers, and you're a believer, that doesn't prevent you, in my opinion, and I believe with Paul's, of remarrying. Okay? Now, there is something, he says, if a situation where there's 
a believer departing from an unbeliever, don't remarry. That's what he says. Be content to dwell with the unbeliever. And if the unbeliever is content to dwell with you, marriage is sanctified. Even though you may say, well, I made a mistake marrying this person. No, you didn't. You see, the issue here is always being a divorce without cause. And I personally believe, because I've, Kathleen and I have done hundreds, literally hundreds of marriage counseling. And I don't believe there's any marriage that can't be fixed if both parties are willing to submit themselves to the Lord. Even one where the person commits adultery. If there's a forgiving spouse, that marriage can be reconstructed. There's, you know, Emerson Egridge, the, the author of Love and Respect, has volumes of letters from people who were the spouse committed adultery and through the faithfulness of the other spouse that husband or wife came back and they completely redid their marriage and now they're actually teaching others about marriage. Now, there's one thing else that people I see do sometimes and this is not right. Sometimes people get divorced, and that person will go marry somebody else. They'll go marry somebody else. And then they'll divorce that person and come back and marry each other again. The Bible expressly forbids that. Listen to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her too and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her in hand and sends her out of his house, or the latter husband does so with his wife, and then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back. To be his wife because she has now been defiled and that's an abomination to the Lord and shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord has given you as an inheritance. Because the problem is divorce inside the church. But did you hear that? You're not supposed to go back to your former spouse and get remarried. I don't know if I'm talking to anybody here. It doesn't matter. This is just what I'm supposed to... It's the context. But... Here's the thing. Because of the divorce rate inside the church, which is almost as high as outside the church, church leaders need to interview each and every person that comes to them and asks to be married before they perform the ceremony. Each situation is different, especially if that person desires to be married here in this church. Among the elders, we have studied this to some extent and have written a policy statement governing who we will and will not marry based on these scriptures. So, pray for us. Pray for your leaders. Because we get asked by people every day. Now, I have less problem marrying two unbelievers because I get to preach the gospel. <laughs> than I do marrying a believer and an unbeliever. Or marrying two believers who say they're 
following Christ and they're committing premarital adultery or fornication. It's a tough thing. I know it's done. I mean, all of us are probably in some way or another guilty of it because we we just learned last, as we will later, or we learned earlier, if a man just looks at another woman, he's already committed adultery. So we're, none of us are free of this. <laughs> but in the actual behavior, he wants us to really be careful. Then he goes to, let's just move on. He goes to a man or woman swearing an oath to God. In verse 33 to 37, Jesus takes up this issue about making covenants with one another. And he says, you have heard that it was said. There it is in the Mishnah again. You, but this is clarification also of the third commandment. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Now, most of us think that that's cursing, you know, using Jesus or God as a curse word. And certainly that's not allowed. That's not right. But that's not what he's referring to here. What he's referring here to is to make an oath or swear an oath to somebody, but you don't intend to fulfill that oath. And what happens is somebody comes along and says, I swear to God I'll help you. You better help him. Because God's going to hold you for that. He's going to hold you accountable for using his name as an oath that you're going to help somebody do something. And we do it all the time. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, well. And he says, don't do it in God's name. Don't do it in heaven's name. Don't do it in earth's name. Don't do it in Jerusalem's name. Don't even do it by your own head. And he says, because heaven, first of all, don't do it by heaven because that's, God's throne. Don't do it by earth. That's his footstool. Don't do it in Jerusalem. That's the city of the great King Jesus someday and is now in New Jerusalem. Don't even do it by your own hair because you can't change your hair color except in the case of blondes. <laughs> I don't know. We can change our hair color, right? But that's not what he's talking about. We can't change the roots. If asked by somebody to do something, just let it be yes or no. Don't swear an oath. I assure you, by my mother's grave. I've heard people say that. On my dead mother's, on my saintly mother. You know, I don't know why the fathers never get called saintly. Because <laughs> we know what they are, don't we? God is going to hold a person responsible for fulfilling that oath. It's just say. Could, I, could you help me with this? Yes. Not why, sure. I'll swear to God I'll help you. Don't do that. And, you know, you, you may get pulled up in that. It's just like we were talking one time about giving God the glory for everything. And uh, Stephanie Cannon took me really literally uh, on that and went around. I, I saw her on Facebook saying something about, don't say good luck. And all I did was said, don't say I've never been sick a day, you know, knock on wood or good luck to you or something like that because you're taking glory away from god luck does not give you anything knocking on wood does not save you from being sick god alone is in charge and as christians we would just simply say god bless you rather than saying good luck well she got a hold of that and man she went on a rampage with it on facebook which is good i i, I wasn't opposed to that but I, I just thought well at least somebody was listening here Now we get into the law of retaliation. Again, he says, you've heard it said, 
an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. Now, that is in the law. And this is repeated as a way of administering justice. It was not intended for personal revenge. Why? Because who said vengeance is mine? God. Okay, I will repay. You don't have to show vengeance. Now, I know they had the, the sanctuary cities where they could run to and, and, and you know, if, if they accidentally killed somebody and the brother of that person chased them to kill them. But what does he really mean here when he says, don't resist an evil person? Because God will repay somebody that hurt you. Now, if they did it unintentionally, that's different. But if they've deliberately hurt you for some reason, God's going to repay that person. It may not be in this life. It may be at the final judgment. I don't know. But he keeps his word, doesn't he? Amen? So he says not to resist an evil person. What does he mean? Is he prohibiting us to use force to protect ourselves that... that uh, we're not even used death. Well, no, he's not talking primarily about governments, police, or soldiers. He says in Romans 13, they have a right to use a sword to keep the law. And you don't spank people with swords. You usually run them through, right? So he's also not pro prohibiting you to protect your own life or the lives of those you're responsible for, or your family, or your church family. We should protect one another. This involves the individual conduct of a person who comes up and slaps you. I mean, that's not very life-threatening unless they knock you down and hit your head on something and die, but that's unusual. And he says, then turn the other cheek now what does that do what if they steal from you who are you looking to for your benefit in this world who are you looking to to provide for you are you looking to yourself somebody stole something that's very precious to you if it was more precious than Jesus it wasn't worth keeping in the first place Oh, that's hard preaching. But they slap you or they, they compel you to carry something for a mile. Or even somebody who asks you in their need. What is his response here to this? First of all, he says, if they slap you, turn the other cheek. What does that do? It makes the person think twice about slapping you again. Does it mean you can be abused? I just want to say this right now. Uh, Kathleen and I have dealt with people, young people, who were sexually abused. And they have all kinds of psychological problems. Sometimes beyond our help. All we can do is listen and cry. But God is not talking about that. He doesn't want you to stay in a situation like that. Or an abusive situation where... A husband or a wife is abusing the other spouse. And sometimes that abuse is nothing more than verbal, but boy, it can really get bad. That's why the Bible says it's better to live in the corner of an attic 
than a house with a contentious woman. He actually say that? <laughs> but guys, we're not off the hook here. He says, keep it to yourself. I, I talk to a lot of people. I've talked to a few, not a lot, who are sexually abused as a child. And somehow or another, they feel guilty about it. And I always have to say to them, you didn't do this to yourself. Because the predators and the domineering people who do this kind of nasty, rotten, no good stuff to children control them by telling them that if they tell somebody what's going on, they'll, they'll end up getting blamed and they make them feel guilty. Isn't that sad? And about all you can do sometimes when somebody comes to you with that kind of a problem is just listen. That's all. If somebody, he says, takes your tunic or your coat, or your tunic, give him your cloak as well. In other words, you, he takes your shirt, give him your coat. Or he takes your coat, give him your shirt. His reasons for stealing you may be more than evil, though, <laughs> because he might just be trying to warm himself in a cold place. Then he talks about somebody compelling you to go a mile. Now, I want you to understand what this is. In those days, a Roman soldier could compel a Jewish person who was under their rule to help him carry his burden for up to and including a mile. Then he had to look for somebody else to go the next mile. Jesus said, go two. Go two with him. If he compels you to go one, go two. Why? Well, you're proving yourself to be a child of God that way. You're proving yourself that, that you know, you want to help. Because you're a child of God. You know, this happened one time. I, I, can any of you think of a place in the Bible where a Jew was, was made to take something that a Roman soldier didn't want to carry? Yes, sir. The cross. While Jesus was struggling to get that cross up Golgotha's hill, they pulled a guy out of the crowd named Simon of Cyrene and made him carry that cross with Jesus up that hill. Now, what's really interesting, whether he knew it or not, it was a great privilege. <laughs> Finally, he says, give to all who ask, and, and all of you say, wait a minute. What about loaning? Well, he says, even if they ask you to loan, don't turn them away. But in this day and age, we have to be careful. Because there's a lot of people who just want to use us or take advantage of our gentle hearts, our Christ-like hearts. He did not say that we shouldn't evaluate the request. He just said don't turn them down if it's a real need. I get a lot of people call me every, every week. Can I, you know, so-and-so said you guys can help me take care of my gas bill, my electric bill, my water bill, my mortgage. And here's what I do. I said, well, we normally only do that for church members. However, here's what we'll do. If you'll be willing to come in and meet with me and go through a budget with me and find, try to find out why you're continually getting behind, we'll be happy to help you. Click. They're just going from one place to another place to another place to get, get a quick fix. But some of them actually do come to me and sit down with me 
or I go to their house or whatever, and I've got a budget form, and I make them say, I want to know every dollar you're spending, every penny you're spending, I want to know how much income you have in, and let's see what, what's going on at the bottom here. It's just simple financial planning is all it is, budgeting. But the problem is when people get in trouble, they want a quick fix. They don't want a permanent fix. And when I require somebody to do that, I don't feel like I'm violating this scripture. I think I'm obeying it for our sakes. Amen? Okay. Finally, he says in verse 43 to 47, love your enemies. Oh, boy. Not just loving those who love us, but love those who are unlovable and your enemies. Now, I just want to tell you something. Brothers and sisters, you only have one enemy in this world. Do you know that? Just one. It's the devil. And a lot of times when people set themselves to be our enemies, it's really, is enemies, that's, that's not enemy. <laughs> It's really the devil setting them against us. Now, we're told that some of them will curse us and hate us and spitefully use us and persecute us. Sometimes simply because we belong to Jesus. <laughs> the love of God is manifest through us when we love them back. And it's hard to do. I'm not... I'm not telling you this. is You can't do it in the flesh. Your flesh will not do it. Your old nature will say, come on, I'm ready, let's fight. But that's not what your new nature will do. A nature created by God like God. That's who you really are. If you're saved today, if you have the Holy Spirit, if you're born again, you are not that old person. Yes, you have sin in your flesh, but that's not you. You are a child of God, and you are a perfect child of God in your heart, in your spirit. And there is no sin in there. And so if you are submitting to that spirit, the Holy Spirit, and your new man, and telling that old man, I am not going to box that guy in the face. <laughs> I'm going to do what Jesus said because that's what my heart really wants to do. That's what my nature really wants to do. It's hard, I know. But it's easy to be around those who love us, isn't it, and like us. But Jesus said, so what? So what? Even the tax collectors do that. Now, you've got to understand the Jews hated the tax collectors. They were Jewish people who embezzled both the Jews and the Romans and kept money creeped off the top. If you only greet your family members, though, he says, and not everyone, you're not any better than one of those tax collectors. You can't say, well, I like my children and my grandchildren and my sons and daughters. I'd rather spend time with them than people in the church. Certainly not those sinners that spend time in the bars. Those are the people we're supposed to go to. <laughs> and listen, your fellow church members... We're going to spend eternity with you. And that may not be true of your family members. Right? So finally, he says this. Be perfect. Is he serious? <laughs> yeah, he was serious. Because that's the standard to get in heaven. 
Perfection. He says, as your Father is in heaven is perfect, be, be perfect. But for those of you who are, not staking your, who are not staking your eternity on Christ, let me just say this. The standard hasn't changed just because you somehow disqualify it in your mind. The standard is perfection. The standard is Jesus himself, his righteousness. And it's not just for Christians, but for everybody. God's not going to look on sin, and sin is not going to get in heaven. In the United States, we have erroneously preached a watered-down gospel too much that excludes repentance and faith-following believers. Perfection is now and always has been the standard for acceptance by God. How in the world do you get it? How in the world can I attain that? I can't. Is he kidding? Does he really mean be perfect? Yes and no. (laughs) Yes, that is the standard. No, he knows you can't. So he offers you something else. Because he himself is the standard and sin is what blocks us from being designed to be in his image. When we sin, we suppress that truth that we are in the image of God. And so God's wrath is just. He doesn't want to do it, but he can't help it. It's a natural outflow of pure, white, hot holiness. But because you were created in his image, he has a right to judge you. So God had to deal with sin in a way that would allow us in our helplessness and in our sinfulness to go to heaven and be with him forever. He did this when he gave his only son, Jesus, to become a substitute and a sacrifice for each of us, for all of us. He stood in our place. He stood in the place of every man and woman and bore the eternal wrath we deserve because of our sins against God. As a result, God had to make him become sin. Not just lay it on him, but make him become it so he could judge sin totally, once and for all. He did the unthinkable, the unreasonable. Now he offers through his resurrection the free gift of perfection through him. Because Jesus entered heaven for us, he will enter we will enter heaven without sin. And not these bodies. These bodies are full of sin, full of lust, full of things that are contrary to what God wants. We've got to have new bodies. This isn't going to work. This body can't be fixed. You do understand that God did not come to change your old nature. He can't. He just put it to death and gives you a new one. That's the gospel. He did that through Jesus. And when you, you know, I was talking to some a couple yesterday who had asked me to come down and talk to them about getting married. And I was sharing the gospel with them. And I said, do you believe in Jesus? Well, sure. I said, no. I know you believe like doesn't everybody. Are you staking your eternity on only? That took on a different kind of a countenance in their eyes. All of a sudden they realized that to do that 
you're willing to give up the old life completely, that's repentance, and to take on this new life and live in it. And say to yourself, if the temptation comes, that's not me anymore. And you'd be surprised how quickly the devil will run away when you realize that he can't pull you back into that again. That's not me anymore. I'm a new creature. I'm a child of God. I'm a citizen of heaven. That's not me. That's the world. That's not me anymore. Amen? You can say that out loud to the devil and watch him run. (laughs) Our perfection, our righteousness is seated in heaven right now for us. And it's never going to be kicked out of heaven. That's the only way you can lose your salvation, by the way, if God kicks his son out of heaven. But those who die without Christ as their Lord and Savior will spend an eternity paying a debt they can never pay. And that's why it goes on for all eternity. Those who have put their trust in Christ will spend a blissful eternity with him, no matter who you're married to or not. Is that you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, your son. Oh, Lord. I was thinking this morning as I woke up, why on earth would you want to save me? Why would you want to love me? All I've ever done, at least for the first 29 years of my life, and and even now all too often, is do things that really just grieve you. And suppress the truth about being in your image. Why would you love me? But then I turned and said to you, Lord, but I need your love. Oh, Lord, I need your love. I can't do anything to make you love me. Father, I can't do one single thing. I've all, in fact, all of my efforts have been just the opposite. But I do need your love desperately. And then I come to your word and hear God demonstrated his own personal love for me. And that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Grace is never more amazing than when we come to the bottom of the cross, look up and see you taking our place. And then rejoicing that you didn't stay dead. You rose again and gave us life eternal. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.